Morning. That's a little better. I'm trying to get our energy up a little bit. I think sometimes we can be in this big room and our energy can be low. And so I'm trying to get that up a little bit. Um, Res kids, the energy bringers all the time. You guys are dismissed to class. As you can notice, uh, we've had a few changes to our liturgy. And um, if you know me, you know I'm really, um, I say I'm three things. A great commission Baptist, right? A great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbors yourself. But I had a third thing on there, a great tradition, right? I believe that we come in a long line of Christians who have passed down to us a great tradition. And our liturgical uh, structure is sort of a, a reflection of that tradition. And so I've added a couple things to our liturgy this week, some small things to help uh, make it more responsive, to sort of be the next stage in our development as a, a great tradition church. And it also sort of comes from a conversation I had with my grandma. Um, my grandma's read the Bible like every month she reads the New Testament, and like every so many months she reads the Old Testament. So in her, you know, 45 years of living, as she would say, She's read over the Bible so many times I can't, I can't count. And um, though she's not perfect, it's had an incredible effect on her life. And she was in the, she's in the hospital. She's rehabbing. She's okay. And she was looking out the window, something I don't do because I look at phones, right? She was looking out the window, and, and she was telling me about watching the sun come up and how she watched it all morning. She watched it peek above the hill. And she watched it come up a little further, and she watched it come to where it is, and now it's sitting right there, she said. Right? And I thought, we just don't do that anymore. The sunset's not boring. The sunrise is not boring. <laughs> we are. And I think a church the same way. Ah, church's boring. No, church isn't really boring. We are. It takes great, a great deal of joy in our hearts to glory in repetitious things. And I think our liturgy helps us learn to glory in repetitious things because the Christian life, after all, is a bit repetitious. Wake up, take off the old self, put on the new self, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, love your neighbor as yourself, make disciples, go to bed, do the same thing the next day. Ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward. Sorry, I had to go on a little bit of a, uh, a rant there. So at the end of the service, there's going to be a couple more opportunities for liturgical sort of engagement. Um, when we take the Lord's Supper, there will be some, and then at the end, there will be some as well. So those are a few small changes to help sort of uh, get us more responsive, help us glory in the repetition of our liturgy, uh, and there will be more that come over the months and years ahead as we've been constantly transitioning as well. I'm thankful to be back. I was out last week at a conference in Boston at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary about a small-town ministry, right, where uh, attending these events so we can sort of learn all we can about what it might look like to make disciples and plant churches across uh, a place like West Virginia. And in my sort of plan was to preach all of Exodus 17, because all of Exodus 17 and 18 are sort of leading us to the next portion of the narrative. And I'm sort of interested in, in getting us there uh, with some relative pace. But this particular pericope, that word pericope just means like a story. This uh, particular story is of great significance throughout the biblical text. It appears in the Psalms. It appears in the writings of Paul. 
In fact, the first seven verses of this chapter are somewhat distinct from the second part of the chapter, and that biblical scholars note the use of actually legal language in this episode at Rephidim. God's people aren't just upset with Moses, they're actually bringing a charge against Moses and thus against God himself. So this morning, we go to the desert. We go to Rephidim at the foot of Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai. So God's people are working their way to Sinai, where the next major episode of the narrative will take place, and then from there, we will move on with the plot movements of the text. So we go to the desert, we go to Rephidim at the foot of Mount Sinai, we go back to a day where God's people decided amongst themselves that God was unfaithful. They decided that God had forsaken them and they have had enough of his servant, Moses. The psalmist would speak of this moment in Israelite history. I'm actually going to read the psalm that he speaks of about it in. In Psalm 95, if you want to flip there with me, you don't have to. It's, it's not on the screen. I just wanted you to listen to it this morning. Psalm 95 begins like many psalms, a song of praise, right? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Notice the text says, to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is great the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, and we are the sheep of his hand. It's all good so far, but things take a turn southward. Today, the psalmist says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, the day of which we'll preach this morning. On that day when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this morning, if you hear God's word, don't be like the people we're about to read about. Well, what did they do? <laughs> we will see together. The title of this morning's sermon is The Rock of Ages. Verses 1 through 3 will be where we start. We'll call verses 1 through 3 the charge, the charge. In fact, I think this legal language gives us a sort of organizing theme for the whole text. So verses 1 through 3 we'll call the charge. Verses 4 through 5 we'll call the verdict. And verses 6 through 7 we'll call the sentence. So let's look together in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Briefly, let's zoom out. The Israelites are traveling, and they will continue to travel for some time. They've gone from the Red Sea to Elam. They've gone from Elam to the wilderness of sin. And today they're going from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim, right at the foot of Mount Sinai. These specifics aren't really important so much as we understand the general plot move is a move towards Mount Sinai. 
Now God's people have come to a place where there's no water to drink, but that's no problem, right? I mean, as Farmer preached to you last week, God does impossible things. God provides for the mission. He is with his people. In just a few chapters, he's made undrinkable water sweet. He's provided bread and quail from heaven. He's delivered them miraculously with ten plagues and split the Red Sea and sent them across and drowned all their enemies to just seal the deal of their deliverance. The God who has time and time again provided something out of nothing is with them. So they should not be too concerned that they've come upon a place where there's no water because, hey, the God who provides something out of nothing is with them, right? Wrong. Verses 2 and 3. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Right, this quarreling, this back and forth with Moses is becoming a theme of the text, right? God's leader and God's people find themselves at odds because God's people don't see what God's doing through God's leader. <clears throat> but this word for quarrel in the Hebrew is a bit stronger than any of the words we've seen thus far in the back and forth between Moses and his people. One of the main ways this word is used in antiquity is in legal settings. Bring a quarrel, bring a charge against someone, at least some sort of formal charge, like a, an early sort of embryonic form of a lawsuit against that person. We also know it's a serious charge because of the faith that Moses thinks awaits him. He tells God in just a moment, we'll read, and as Kara read a moment ago, these people are going to stone me. Right? So Moses sort of already has what could happen in mind. And he's asking, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put God to the test? Moses understands that they're quarreling with him is really a quarrel with God, that they're bringing sort of as the congregation, remember, of like two million people. This is no small thing. This is like standing before the whole state and, and them all hating you, all being mad at you, and you're having to reason with, with all of these people. So what's the charge that they bring, right? Moses is afraid of stoning. Stoning would be the result of breaching covenant, of a sort of um, type of treason, if you will. God's people, as we'll see as the text unfolds, believe that God has forsaken them. They believe that the God who promised Abraham that he would be with his people throughout their story has broken that promise. He's not with them. He's led them to the place where they are dying of thirst. They're weary, they're tired, and they're just really, really thirsty. God has guided them in this pillar of smoke or fire, and perhaps, though, this pillar is just not enough anymore. Perhaps it's a bit impersonal now. They just want to get some water. They just want to get some rest, and they're tired of living every single day by faith, waiting on bread from heaven, showing up at a place where there is no water. They just want to pull off the road to McDonald's, right? They just want to be able to get water when they want water, food when they want food, and have to stop trusting this impersonal God who told them he would be theirs, but since hasn't really shown himself much to them, at least in their fickle hearts. Why have you brought us here, they say to the Lord, 
to kill us, to kill our children and our livestock. Moses, you've led us to a dead end, the people cried. This God of yours who promised Abraham a great nation would come of his people? Well, here's the nation, and we're really thirsty. We haven't had water. We need water. And this nation that's going to be a blessing to the nations, well, it dies right here at the foot of this God-forsaken mountain. You promised, God, that you would dwell with us, but Lord, it seems, his people say, you've broken that promise. We're at our wit's end and we're dying. So Moses, you are going to pay for that. So that leads us to a question, right? Has God broken that promise? Has God forsaken his people? Well, the answer, of course, is no. The answer, of course, is no. But let's look in verses 4 and 5 and see sort of the verdict and this charge that's been brought forth by God's people that he has forsaken them. Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Moses knows he's in trouble. Moses knows the nation has turned on him, and God tells him to do three things. The first thing God tells him to do is to walk up in front of everybody. I'm sure Moses was really hoping for that opportunity. The second thing Moses is told to do is to take some elders with him. And the third thing that Moses is told to do is to take that staff with which you struck the Nile, that staff that you held out over Egypt, that staff that has represented God's presence and God's authority. Take that staff. Take the elders of the people and go stand in front of the accuser. I think what they would have seen that we don't see is that an ancient court is convening. Moses and his staff representing the Almighty is the plaintiff, the one accused of breaking this promise. The accused in antiquity would walk in front of the courtroom. He would stand before all the people who accused him, and with him to his side would be a sort of jury of his peers, as we would say today. God, in the middle of the desert, at the base of Mount Sinai, is convening a courtroom. Moses is the plaintiff. The nation of people are the defendants, and the elders are the jury. When Moses walks in front of everybody, when he takes that fateful journey around the crowd, he's essentially assuming the position of the guilty party. In essence, as if God was telling Moses, I want you to almost say, guilty as charged. You've forsaken us, you've led us out here to die, etc., etc., etc. I want you to pretty much, as if you're hearing this from the people, say, that's what I've done, as you're walking in front of the people. But is he guilty? Is God guilty? No! I mean, have we read the text at all? He's been the pillar of fire or of smoke in front of them the entire time. He has miraculously fed them, fed them bread from heaven every single day and extra on Saturday so they don't have to worry about it on Sunday. He's miraculously delivered them time and time again. The people of Israel are guilty, not God. They're the ones who have forgotten his blessing. But even worse than forgetting God's blessing, they've forgotten his presence. I think we can make a little preaching point here. 
that there is um, great sadness and, and great wrongdoing in forgetting God's blessing. But there's something even more profoundly wrong with forgetting God's presence. Church, I remind you this morning that every breath you breathe is supplied by the Almighty God. That every meal you eat, though it didn't fall from heaven, it came to your plate because God was faithful from the moment it grew in the ground or walked on the ground or whatever to the moment it arrived on your plate. God is the one who feeds and serves the nations. It's terrible when we forget he's blessed us, but I think it cuts even deeper when we forget he's with us, he's guiding us, he knows us, he loves us, and his ways are right. I don't know what you're walking through this morning. I don't know if maybe this is a season of blessing, a season of much, or a season of pain, a difficult season. I want you to remember this morning that God is with you. Now, the courtroom has been set up, right? Moses, assuming the position of the guilty party, is in front of the congregation, his whole group of defendants, right? And the elders of Israel are to the side watching this all take place, rendering their judgment ultimately in the end. The charge has been given. God's people are obviously guilty, but Moses, and by extension God, stands in their place, and now it's time for the sentencing. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masa at Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us? or not. There at the end of the text, we get insight into the specific way they were testing the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, there are two prepositions here that are absolutely huge. Uh, The first is the word before, before. And the second is the word on, on. If you look in verse 7, behold, I will stand before you, God says to Moses. There on the rock at Horeb. Then he goes on to tell Moses what he will do. You will strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. But before Moses does what Moses is supposed to do, before the people drink the water that will come from the rock, God says, I will stand before you and I will stand on the rock. Now, let's think of this word before, right? God says he will stand before Moses, right? Moses is this palpable image of Moses standing there with all of his accusers out there facing him. And God says, go to the rock, and I'm going to stand before you on the rock. He says, the people want to kill you, but I'm going to step in front of you and stand there. Moses, you have to go up there, but once you get up there, I will stand before you. And I will stand before you on the rock. God is sort of standing on the rock, identifying himself with the rock. Think about the psalm we just read at the beginning of the service, or the beginning of the sermon. It began talking about God as a rock. The most prevalent image of God in the Old Testament is that of a rock. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. 
Psalm 78, 35, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Psalm 18, 31, for who is God besides the Lord and who is a rock besides our God? Psalm 144, blessed be the Lord, my rock. Psalm 28, 1, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. God stands before Moses and on the rock, standing between Moses and the accuser and standing on the rock, identifying himself with the rock. And he tells Moses to take that staff, that staff that has brought judgment to Egypt, that staff that has split the Red Sea, that staff that has been a symbol of God's authority. He said, take that staff, that staff that has brought down my judgment on people. And on the nations, take that staff and strike the rock. Water will come of it, and the people will drink. What's the sentence? God will strike the rock, and the guilty people who put God on trial will receive grace. They'll receive water and they'll receive life. Church, Jesus is the rock. Paul thought back to this story when he was writing to the wretched Corinthians who are not unlike so many of us today. Towards the end of the letter, Paul's writing about the rampant idolatry in the Corinthian church, and he's talking about how God's people, when they were wandering the wilderness, were idolaters. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what he's saying is all followed the pillar of smoke and fire, right? All were baptized into Moses, meaning they were followers of Moses. They were following him as, as he was following God. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Right, this food that came from heaven, this water that came from the rock was supernaturally provided for them, that God was in the wilderness sustaining his people. There was a spiritual element, a life-giving element to the manna and the water which they were um, ingesting, if you will. For they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, Paul says. And the rock was Christ. Paul says, as they wandered through the wilderness, they drank from the rock that followed them. They drank from the rock that would come 1,500 years later, humbly born in a major in Bethlehem. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overcome in the wilderness. And why was God not pleased with them, right? Because they doubted his presence. They doubted his goodness. Last week, we were reminded of God's provision. This week, we're reminded of his presence. Church, the rock in the wilderness, the rock at the base of Mount Sinai, is the triumph of God's grace. Is God with me? <laughs> Cried the people of Israel. Strike me cried our loving God. Worship team, if you guys would come on up as we wind uh, towards the end of the service. There's a famous hymn 
that was written some time ago, and it uses the imagery of a rock. And the very beginning of the hymn uses imagery from Exodus 33, I believe. And we're going to get there, where Moses is, instead of at the base of the mountain, he's at the top of the mountain, and he's talking to God. And he wants God to reveal his glory to him. And, and he essentially says, you know, if I reveal my glory to you, you'll, you'll die. You can't handle that. So he clefts the rock, right? And, and Moses has sort of this, this hiding place. And the hymn begins talking, talking about this story. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. But the old hymnist uses another metaphor for a rock in the next couple of phrases. He begins, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee from Exodus 33. And then he moves to Exodus 17. He says, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure or the older version right be of sin the double cure save me from its guilt and power i think of that hymn rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee let the water and the blood that flowed from the rock right He's thinking about Exodus 33, Exodus 17, and perhaps also John 19. John 19, 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, listen in, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also might believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Church, I remind you this morning that Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, has been struck for you. The judgment of God has befallen Christ. And from his wounded side flows a river of grace. That river flows here this morning. Church, do you know that God? Have you come to that river and drank? Is God with me? You may say if you're a Christian. To which I think God responds, strike me strike me. God has shown the depths to which he will go to save us. God has seen your plight. He loves you, and he's died in your place. And this Jesus stands this morning, risen in glory, and he beckons all to come and drink. The end of the Bible, I wasn't going to read it, but I mean, we might as well, right? 
The end of the Bible speaks of, in Revelation 22, this river of life. John sees, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And where is it ultimately flowing from? It's flowing from the Lamb. Right? Picture this. John is seeing sort of the throne of God. He's seeing where this is all going, right? He's looking into the sure future that we have. And sort of allegorically, metaphorically, he sees a throne, and he sees from that throne water flowing through the middle of the streets of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Right? The water that flows from the throne of God is healing the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be any sin. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I mean, they'll be his, and night will be no more. They will need no night of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Church, God has struck the rock and the gracious water still flows. Come and drink this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good, and you are here. We love you, Lord. But too often we are not unlike the Israelites. Lord, we read in the text of all the ways that you've delivered them, all the things you've spared them from. And yet here they are putting you to the test. Here they are bringing a charge against you and against your servant. And it's so easy for us to just look at them and ridicule them and think, how could you be so stupid? Like the, the food that you're eating literally fell from heaven. But, but Lord, we're not that different. Lord, we take the things you give us and then ask where you are. Lord, you are near. You are with us. Your spirit abides in us. Help us be cognizant of that reality. Help us abide in you, believing that you abide in us. Forgive us when we are presumptuous. Forgive us when we ignore you. Forgive us when we let everything else cloud our vision and distract us from you. And forgive us when we level charges against you. And Lord, thank you for standing in the place of the accused. Thank you for taking the punishment that you did not deserve at the cross in Jesus Christ so that me, an imperfect person, can love you and know you and live with you forever. And as your text says in Revelation 22, reign with you forever. Father, we thank you for this morning this opportunity to gather. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're moving now to a time of communion, right? We take the Lord's Supper uh, every other week. One of the things that we're adding to the liturgy this morning is a little responsive reading here, which I'll do in, in just a moment. It's short this morning. It may get longer in the future. It depends on, you know, how many conversations I have with my grandma, I guess. Um, the Lord's Supper uh, is a place 
for God's people to come as a family. Do you know all different types of people come to this table, right? We don't come to this table because we all think the same things, look the same way, dress the same way, like the same kind of music, have the same political affiliation, have the same jobs, make the same amount of money, right? This table's not supposed to be that. You have all kinds of tables you can gather around people on those things with. This is the table where you say, I come to this table as a son or a daughter of God. And the only reason these people are coming with me isn't because they look like me, think like me, talk like me, spend money on the things I spend money on, like the things I like. But the reason we come to this table is because through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, these people who were once strangers are now my family. These people who I once got to decide if I liked or not, like I have to learn how to love. And that is God's grace. We'll do as we've been doing. Uh, Sam, if you want to go ahead and come on up. Sam will stand uh, to this side of the table. I'll stand to this side. I will invite you to line up at the table. I'll hand you a piece of bread. Uh, You'll eat it there. Then I'll hand you a cup and you will drink it there as well. So if you would please stand. If you would go to the next slide. Jeremiah, I'll start us. And then you'll read the part that says congregation. But don't read congregation. <laughs> Hallelujah. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Amen. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus, we now invite you to approach the table. If you're not and would like to come, please come and let us pray a blessing over you. Join us at the table.